Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to Paul Rudnick. He's a screenwriter, a playwright, an essayist, uh, and he's got a brand new novel out called Playing the Palace. Now, we talk about working as a screenwriter, being on set, moulding what you write around what you can actually see the actors doing and improvising. Also, he runs us through his very thorough writing routine. And he tells us why sometimes when you're working, when you're up against it, you just have to go with it. When you're a writer, you don't necessarily get weekends or you can declare your own weekends or your weekends can last for six months. I, when something's going well I te- or when I'm on a deadline, I will work seven days a week, you know, all straight through. So, um, so the days can vary. And then when I'm doing something, you know, sort of delightful like this and getting to tell people about, about my work, that's another um, schedule. There is more with Paul Rudnick on the way in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. Welcome to the show. My name's Dan Simpson. Thanks for finding us. Thanks for following. Uh, this is a Writer's Routine uh, where we take a look inside an author's working day, very simply to find out how they get stuff done. This week we're with Paul Rudnick. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote Adam's Family Values, personal favourite. Also the uh, the Stepford Wives, mid-noughties with uh, Nicole Kidman, I think. And he wrote the Sister Act movies too, although he did those under a different name. And he's got a brand new novel out. I think it's his third. It's called Playing the Palace. It's been, it's been dubbed the must-read romance novel of the season. It's all about a New York event planner who uh, who falls in love with England's gay crown prince, Edgar. And it's a sharp, romantic satire of opposites attracting and, and life in royal court, in current life as well. Now, we talk about how he wrote it and what screenwriting taught him about novel writing. Also, what being a screenwriter is like on set. Uh, how adaptive do you have to be? I've always wondered why they need to be there. Why they need to sit there with their own 
chair? Like, is it just a status symbol? It turns out there is a lot to actually do. And Paul runs us through it uh, and how that's been as well, being a screenwriter with actors through the last year on Zoom calls. Also, we discuss his very private writing space that he is extremely protective of. And he, uh, and he thoroughly runs us through a busy writing day where you always have to be on your toes and ready to change. So that's coming up. Let's dive into it with, uh, with Paul Rudnick. And we start, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. My desktop, my laptop, and above all else, my couch. Or it's sort of more of a chaise, which is where the real action happens. Um, and a stack of yellow legal pads. Because for many years, that was I would write every first draft longhand and then ultimately transfer it to the computer. I've, I must admit, I've started to cheat. I've started to begin things on the on the laptop. Um, but it's a, I'm in a small office on the, the top floor of, of the home I share with my, my longtime partner. And I've got actually a legacy from my mother, which is she always kept a mug filled with big pens a magnifying glass and a pair of scissors. So it's sort of all the essentials. Because also I remember one of one of the, my few accomplishments in life was I realized when I need a pen and I can never find one, the solution would be to buy, say, 50 big pens, which, which costs you all of about 10 bucks. And that way you always have one. It's like buying lots of pairs of glasses. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, uh, it's a very soothing space. Uh, now... That that's kind of the practical aspect of it. What what is there inspirational maybe on the walls around you? I, I'm thinking we might see some art. I don't know. Well, yes, actually, I once had a, a kind of crackpot theory, which was I have friends who are visual artists who like very blank white walls because they work with their eyes all day. So when they look up, they like to have something restful. And I, as a um, non-visual artist, like to have a certain busyness. I like to look up at things that sort of take me away from whatever I'm working on at the moment. So I have a lot of posters from I've also worked a lot as a playwright. So I have... Um, posters from many of my plays from some of the movies that I've worked on. And there's a huge photo of Kevin Klein in in and out that I'm staring right at um, a poster from my play, Jeffrey, another from I hate Hamlet. It's, it's kind of nice to remind myself that, okay, at one point I wrote something, so it must be possible to do it again. So it's kind of like a, a little bit of a, a Paul Rudnick retrospective, which uh, most of which I actually inherited also from my mom, because for a while I was very superstitious about memorabilia, so she would keep it all. And then once she passed on, I thought, okay, maybe it's time. Maybe I'm allowed now. So, um, so most of my uh, there's plenty of art elsewhere in the, in our house, but because this is my kind of space, it tends to have a lot of of Paul Rudnick centric items. Oh, and it's one of my other favorite pieces is there's a um, a photograph, which was from the shoot of Adam's Family Values in the makeup trailer, where I'm sitting in a makeup chair having my hair done by Christina Ricci, dressed as Wednesday Adams. And she's looking at me like my hair is just a hopeless prospect, but she's going to give it a shot, you know, with a big can of hairspray and a, bu- and a brush. So I've always cherished that photo just on every level because Christina was such a joy and and I loved working on those movies. Um, yeah, there are some other photos like that. There are photos of my partner from various stages of our, our relationship. There's a picture I, I cherish. This was right after Jeffrey opened off Broadway and there was a gay pride float in the, the parade that year 
with a float that featured our entire cast. And John and I stood on the on the sidelines, on the sidewalks of New York, cheering them on. And it was that was right after we met. So it was a very kind of wonderful early moment for us and a great time for, for that play. Um, let me see. I also have photos. There's some that have pictures of wonderful people. I remember some people who are now gone. It's funny. I was just reading something online about the, the playwright Wendy Wasserstein who died far too young. Um, and I have photos from a a very early, she would give a, a party every year called Orphan's Christmas, where people who didn't go home for the holidays would gather at her apartment. So I have pictures from that that I really treasure. Um, what else? Let me see. I have um, pictures of my parents. Oh, I have a wonderful picture of my partner, John, when he was getting a tattoo down in Miami. This was years ago. And the tattoo had a bleeding heart with a dagger through it, dripping blood, and my name. So that was, you know, one of the most wonderful tributes I could ever imagine and and, and examples of of his love. I, of course, was way too cowardly and afraid of pain to return the favor <laughs> But I remember when, when I told my mom, actually, that John had gotten this tattoo, because I wondered if, if that would quite be her, her cup of tea. But she thought about it, and then she said she liked the idea. She said, because you can take a ring off. And I loved that she had made that sort of progression in her thoughts for why a tattoo was a genuine expression of love. And in the photo, you could see John, who's getting it's in multicolors. It was, I'm sure, excruciatingly painful. He is not bothered in the slightest I'm watching him get the tattoo and I am in agony. So it's kind of a portrait of our relationship. That's the love, isn't it? Listen, Paul, let me just, I'm going to use this time. You're the first screenwriter of some repute that I've had on the show. You mentioned being on the set of Adam's Family Values and getting your hair all done. I've often wondered, uh, what does a screenwriter do on the set of a movie like why are you there when the piece has already been written well it varies wildly sometimes certain directors do not want a screenwriter within you know a thousand miles of the set but i've been lucky because i've had directors who've continued to value my input and especially on a comedy when you want to be able to rewrite up to the last second before filming, I love being part of the process where you could stand there and if a line isn't working, you come up with something better. If an actor is doing something absolutely wonderful and you want to extend that moment, you're there. So a writer can be absolutely essential or completely vestigial and unwanted. But, um, but on the Adams Family movies, I remember it was just such a treat to, to watch Joan Cusack go to work at some of her big... Um, sort of nuclear meltdowns. And I would just add things in and she would pick them up, you know, in an instant. So I felt very um, valued on that project. There was also a scene in In and Out there's this, that, I, that I think people enjoyed where Kevin Klein sort of sings and dances when he's listening to a tape that's telling him how to be more masculine and how to be a man. And we shot that in the corner of a soundstage on a set that was built to look like his Indiana home. And we were having such a great time and Kevin was so up for it and he was dancing up a storm that we just, and we had the guy who was recording what was supposedly the, the tape he was listening to on the soundstage as well. So I just kept adding more material and shooting it even higher. So I love, those are the moments where it's actually a little bit closer to theater where the, where the writer is, is considered, you know, an integral part of the process. 
so it's um and sometimes I just sit back in my chair and enjoy watching everyone go to work because on a soundstage there are hundreds of people highly skilled going about tasks that would be way beyond me. Um, and also sometimes I can consult with the director and the producer and you chat about, okay, what do you think is working? What does the scene need? Why is this a disaster? Um, and everybody's wearing headsets. So it's, it's sort of moments of excruciating boredom interrupted by moments of high excitement. And also on a movie, you only get to get it right once. I mean, you can do multiple takes, but still you, you were there on the day with that cast, with that script. So I always think make it as good as it possibly can get. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've known every sort of range of participation. How, how does it make it easier for you when you're on a set and you can see the actor? You mentioned Joan Cusack there. You can see how they're inhabiting the role and maybe if you need to go and rewrite stuff, does it then make it easier when you know what they're doing and where they need to go in your brain within how you're using the words? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Because sometimes it's, I remember one again on Adam's Family Values, Joan was really soaring. And she was so funny that everyone on the set, myself included, we were like shoving Dixie cups in our mouths to stop from laughing and ruining the take. So that's when you're just so grateful to be to be part of it. But yeah, there have been on other films where something was just not working at all, where it was just landing with such a thud, I would come up with 12 possible other lines and we would shoot all of them just to see if something would finally click. Because sometimes there are actors who haven't quite found the part yet and I could try and help them with that. Um, Sometimes there's a moment of desperation where you think, come on, let's come up with something that works. Um, So yeah, it can go almost anywhere, but it really does help to see the actor because you realize their strengths, you see what they're wearing. Um, you see how they're often you can find the solution to, to any sort of block in the scene itself. You look around the room, you see, okay, there's a table. Who else is in the scene? Who might have a, a comeback? Who might just do a cross in the background? Um, all of that can be just incredibly valuable information, which you only get if you're on the set. Now, Paul, you've taken us through your your writing space. Oh, very quickly, you mentioned when you were talking about that how it's how it's your space. Um, now you're with your long term partner. What would you feel if 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 he were to kind of come into the room and and try and move stuff about? Are you quite protective over it? I am. I'm fair. I mean, he's wonderful, so I'm very welcoming when he wants to come in for a chat, especially if it's a a great way of breaking up the workday. Then that's just a delight. But yeah, no, he's very respectful, and we, you know, we each have our things. So, um, so yeah, I think he he also, I think over the course of our our years long relationship, has realized okay, sometimes when I don't appear to be doing anything, I'm actually working. I'm thinking something through. I'm making notes. So he's really good about that, even though I realize it's a it's a strange process to be around. And and we know when to be quiet and we know when to say, okay, you know, workday's over, let's go have some fun, let's go to the movies, let's watch some Netflix, let's have a snack. But um but yeah, we're we're very we're tend to be on the private side. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's a little bit of a shorter one this week with, uh, with Paul, so we'll be back with him in a second. That's why I'm popping up right now. Just to point you towards our Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything along the way that has helped the way that you tell your stories, you can always say thanks to us for, for doing that at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. By pledging whatever you can every month, it really helps us carry on. Just a dollar or so a month, it really puts us in a much better place to keep going, to keep bringing you chats with all manner of different writers, some of the best in the world, some people who are just starting out, some people who are screenwriters who are turning into novelists, just like this week's. By pledging, you're not just helping out the show, uh, you can get merch, you can get your own book to sponsor the show, you've even got more bonus content as well as the extra episode that we're giving you for free every week as well. And as always, you get my undying thanks, my unending gratitude. Uh, if you do fancy it, it's over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with uh, Paul Rudnick talking about his writing life and his brand new book, his third novel, Playing the Palace. Now, in this half, we discuss the book, the ideas for it and why he lives for overwriting, why he thinks you can't make anything too polished. Also, what screenwriting has taught him about novel writing. And we pick it up talking about the actual working day, like his, his writer's routine, what the whole show is about. How does it look for Paul? Well, it, and it's interesting because it varies wildly. I mean, one of the things I love about being a writer is that every day is, is such a fresh challenge and that every project is a blank page or starting from zero. So when something's really cooking, especially, it's interesting, during the lockdown, during this past year of pandemic, I felt that in a way the whole world was suddenly on a writer's schedule where you're in your room alone trying to figure out your life. But, so I've had various projects, including I was doing the final edits on Playing the Palace on, on my new book. And that was actually kind of thrilling because it's, it's an all-out romantic comedy. So to be able to escape from the pandemic for at least a couple of hours and go over those galleys, which can be very intensive because you're looking for final word choices, final corrections of grammar, final cuts, um, it gets very scientific and weirdly exhausting, even though you're not doing anything but sitting in front of a computer. 
Um, so my day can be cool. If I had a project like that, if I was looking at galleys, that could begin, you know, at 8 a.m. and last for the full day of um, really just word by word. Then if I'm actually writing something, because I, I began another project in a, in a first rough draft, and that has its own excitement because it was me and my um, my MacBook, and it felt right. And that sometimes things wobble a little at the beginning, and you wonder, is this a full-scale project? Is this worth my time? Was this something that sounded like a better idea than it turned out to be? But this project was really starting to cook. So I really worked many, many hours a day. I take brief breaks for um, for a snack. But even at night, after I would, John and I would watch um, whatever police, you know, Norwegian police procedural was on Netflix. Sometimes after like 1130 or midnight, I'd come back into my office and keep going because you don't want to interrupt that flow or whatever whatever one chooses to call it, because I was telling a story that had some very personal elements and it just was feeling like the, and and this can be very deceptive, but it was feeling like when writing kicks in, when you're on the right track, when you've chosen the right project, the right characters, the right point of view, um, you just can't, or I just can't stay away from it. And I just want to make sure I get it down. I also have this strange paranoid streak where I sometimes imagine that I will finish a very rough draft, I will be hit by a bus, someone will discover this rough draft and imagine that I thought it was good, <laughs> which is, would be horrifying. I never include in this particular scenario the idea that I'd be dead, so why would I care? But still, I'm, very, I'm kind of protective of my early drafts. They really are just for me. So once something starts getting more polished and then, God willing, I'm able to send it off to to an agent or an editor that I feel, oh, thank God, you know, bring on the bus. But um, but the day can get quite intensive in that sense of, no, I'm falling in love with the project and I don't want to be far from it. And then other days I realize I, I have to take a breather. And if I'm having if I'm really puzzled by something, if, if something seems to have died or reached a dead end, often, you know, a long walk will solve it. It's like, no, get away from it. Let your mind travel somewhere else and some inner mechanism might solve the problem. And that often happens. Um, and then after I finished an entire draft or when I finished the galleys on playing the palace, I really needed some serious downtime where I thought, okay, I am allowed to take a day off. Cause also when you're a writer, you don't necessarily get weekends or you can declare your own weekends or your weekends can last for six months. But um, I, when something's going well, I te- or when I'm on a deadline, I will work seven days a week, you know, all straight through. So, um, so the days can vary. And then when I'm doing something, you know, sort of delightful like this and getting to tell people about, about my work, that's another um, schedule so that then I'm, um, sitting on my computer talking with the world. Or there were also, um, earlier this year, I we shot a, a, a show I wrote for Showtime, uh, not Showtime, for HBO called Coastal Elites. And it was a set of extremely intense, wildly dramatic and comic monologues, all taking place right on the eve of the, the past election. And originally, the pieces were going to be staged at the, the public theater in New York, by the wonderful director, Jay Roach, who would then shoot them for HBO. 
And when the shutdown happened, that was no longer possible. It seemed like this this project was gone. But then HBO came back to us and said there may be a way. So we shot remotely. So I was in the same room I'm in now on about three or five apps at once where Jay was in California and he and I would talk on our phones. Um, then we would Zoom with the crew who would be, we had very minor crew at every healthcare protocol in place to Bette Midler, who was in upstate New York, where we built a tiny set for her character, or Dan Levy, who was in another part of Los Angeles, or Issa Rae, who was in yet another part of Los Angeles. And we would shoot them on another app entirely, which was more um, like film than, than like Zoom. So these were all operating simultaneously. And Jay and I could talk without interrupting the actors while they were being filmed. So it was both nerve-wracking and thrilling. It was very intimate because here I was in my office, but I was getting to watch Bette Midler do a 35-minute monologue at peak intensity and peak hilarity while Jay and I were busily texting each other, oh my God, oh, she's so fabulous. Um, And then the, the monologue would end and Bette would get on yet another act and say to us, oh, was that okay? And we would just do some sort of digital version of screaming and cheering at her. That was fantastic. So it was a way I'd never worked before. But for those pieces, because they were monologues, being that close in, especially to that that extraordinary cast, became a kind of lucky result that it was exactly the right way of working for that piece. But it was very improvised. And it was no one had ever quite tried that before. And it was when Zoom was very new to everyone. So that was yet a whole other sort of arrow I added to the quiver. Um, so yeah, I, and I want I love being surprised and even terrified of it. So it's, uh, so this whole year, as for everyone, has been one long improvisation. In the morning, when you sit down to write, and when you were writing Playing the Palace, uh, how would you know about what you were writing that day, what part of the story that you were working on was, and was there a goal in mind? There was. Well, it's a because, as I said, it's a romantic comedy, and it's about Carter Ogden, who is a associate event architect, which means a party planner in Manhattan, and he shares an apartment. He's just been dumped multiple times. He's kind of about as low as you you could get, and he's pretty much given up on love altogether when he meets Prince Edgar, the crown prince of England, in a manner that can only happen in Manhattan where where such collisions are possible. So I loved writing the two of them together and writing Carter in Edgar's world and in Buckingham Palace, and almost more so when Carter would bring Edgar to his sister's Jewish wedding in Piscataway, New Jersey. So every day there was a new sort of segment of their personal soap opera to look forward to. And I had done an outline. So I, I, t- I tend not to outline too heavily because I love being surprised. I think when the characters are fully drawn, they kind of take the lead. And I just, you know, follow desperately behind taking dictation. Um, so, yeah. So when I, I'm playing the palace, there was a sense of I knew that this was a romance that I wanted desperately to succeed. And I wanted the audience or the readers to uh, to root for these guys. So it was a question of mapping out how you can earn a happy ending, which is the great challenge of any romantic comedy, is letting people buy it. I mean, we live in a world that can be very cynical with, with a very just cause, where you think, eh, you know, look at the divorce rate. Um, look at Tinder, look at Grindr. These things don't work out. 
Um, but I thought, okay, I'm going to prove that once in a while, and maybe only in fiction, and maybe only in a rom-com, can things be quite this this joyous. But that's what I was after. So every day I thought, okay, what obstacles could I hurl in these guys' paths, and how can I have them leap around them, work around them, destroy them, whatever? Um, so it was, again, it was a, a sense of still liking to be surprised to see what they would be up to today, where the story wanted to go. What I find usually is if I plan an ending in advance, that ending will actually be, excuse me, maybe three chapters before where the ending finally lands, where I realize, okay, I have a general direction, but no, they're actually, we need more information. And then once I've worked with my editor, uh, who's Cindy Wong at Ed Berkeley, who's just terrific, she gave me more guidance where I thought, and then once I get notes from someone who I trust, I can't wait to get back to the material. So I love saying, oh, yes, I can fix this. Because I also, I very much live to rewrite. I think you never should regard your, your words as, as overly precious or as polished until they are, are as close to that as you could get. So I love digging back in and making, you know, tinkering with the machine. Um, so, yeah, playing the palace was, um, I had a, an overall sense of it, but I let the, the story guide me. You, you've written across many different forms, many different films, essays, novels for many different ages. What has screenwriting, specifically writing uh, for film and telly, what has that taught you about writing novels? Well, they're all, all stage and the, the screen and the page are wildly different. I've learned, especially when it comes to comedy, moments and lines that can just soar on stage can be absolute disaster on screen. So I've learned to know the rules of each particular form Um, because film is very nimble. You could cut instantly from somebody's ramshackle Hell's Kitchen fifth floor walk up to the grandest hall at, at Westminster Abbey. In a novel, what I enjoy is it's when personal description becomes so important. So I realized, okay, don't get skimpy with it in a, in a screenplay Sometimes the visual can do what five pages are needed for in a novel. But that's something I've learned to really relish about about writing fiction is that sense of world building, of creating a whole cast of characters where, I guess in a sense, when I'm writing a book, I'm the director, screenwriter, cast, cinematographer, production designer, everything combined. So I get to control every aspect on a movie, you need to surrender a lot of that. Uh, stage is somewhere in between those two. But um, I'd say that screenwriting did also teach me a certain concision where you realize, okay, cut into the action sometimes far late in the game. You sometimes don't need to lay that much groundwork. Sometimes you think, no, 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 let's let the trust the reader to to be with you, to um to stay with you, even if you're, you know, a few beats ahead in terms of the storytelling. Um, so that, yeah, it's just trying to, I, I guess in a certain sense, it's trying to make a novel every bit as vivid as a film so the reader can feel the the escape that they feel when they're at the movie theaters, the immersion, that sense of, oh, okay, I'm not reading a book, I'm, I'm living it, I'm watching it, I'm fully inv- invested. So, um and I think that a lot of writers have, have mentioned this, but when you want a certain cinematic experience, that feeling of, okay, 
you're, you're crossing that line from black and white in color into Oz. And if you could get that on the page, it's, it's a, a great sort of delirious joy. So especially in, in something like playing the palace, which takes place on a level of sort of grounded romantic fantasy, I'd call it. It was great to, to aim for that, to say, okay, let's let a lot of our secret dreams and questions and dirty thoughts about royalty, fully, let's unleash them on the page, which is also a great sort of safe space. In a movie, I think you, you'd certainly, you're also, movie, you're also dealing with very specific actors who only look one way. In a novel, you can make them look the way you want to. You could create an attraction between characters. You could create a passion. You can write sex scenes that will hopefully, you know, sort of captivate the writer in ways that that only Brad Pitt could on on screen. So it's um, yeah, very different. But but I find when it's when the material's working, they're all equally and wildly enjoyable. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to you, Paul Rudnick, for coming on the show, for sparing us some busy time, dialing in from his, no doubt, luxurious Long Island mansion. Uh, you can get a copy of the book, Playing the Palace, wherever you're listening to this. It's in the podcast notes, and it's over at writersroutine.com as well. If you use the link, we get a little bit of a kickback there. Now, next week, Alex Michaelides is coming on the show. He wrote The other Silent Patient a few years ago. Uh, it was hugely successful critically lauded it was the first ever uk debut to go straight to number one on the new york times bestseller list Uh, and he's just published a new novel the maidens he's talking all about that about the pressure from the first how that rubbed off on the second one how he plans his day we run through the whole thing it's a it's a really deep chat next week Uh, That's with Alex Michaelides next week on the show. In the meantime, if you can, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can always get in touch uh, using the contact page at writersroutine.com and by giving us a follow on Twitter. It's at writerspod there. And you can support us on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. And I will see you next week with Alex Michaelides on the show. Until then, bye. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.